Lord, we are in desperate need of your word constantly. We stray. We forget. Sometimes we just don't plain understand. We misunderstand it. We, we uh, bring our biases to it, perhaps. Lord, I just pray today that you would clear away error in our minds that you would cause us to see the truth of your word about the doctrine that we're going to talk about today. Lord, I pray that you would help me just to get out of the way and let people see Christ and the glorious gospel that God has come up with for salvation, for justification. And I pray, Lord, that you would make this body of believers right here in this room, Lord, just stalwarts of the faith, You would make them massive defenders of the faith. That, Lord, when we go out into our community, when we go to our job, when we go to our family get-togethers, when we meet with friends, when we um, interact with others, Lord, that we will be ready to give a defense for what we believe. That we will be ready to share the reasons for the hope that is in us and that we would do it with gentleness and respect Lord, help us to be that kind of people. We ask that you would use this sermon to further us in maturity and our understanding so that we can be just that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we began a study uh, that we're going to come back to from time to time, and we called it Why We Believe. And it's just my prayer that God would use these sermons, like I just prayed, to equip us as believers to not only know uh, what we believe, but to know why we believe it. And then having nailed those things down in our own hearts and minds, then we're able to go out and be uh, faithful apologists of the Christian faith, defenders of the faith. And I shared this verse last week with you. I'll share it again here um, as I'm reintroducing this series a little bit. It's 1 Peter 3.15. This is what God calls every Christian to be prepared for. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So again, I'm just praying that we, as a church, that this group of believers will, that we will not turn in on ourselves like, a, like some kind of uh, Christian cocoon, if you will, <laughs> You know, we're, we're to be separated from the world as far as holiness goes, but we are not to uh, insulate ourselves off from the world to the point that we never interact with unbelievers. We're here to interact with those people, right? And give them the truths of God's word so that they might be saved as well. So in order for us to, to have these meaningful conversations uh, and have meaningful Uh, witnessing interactions with the world, we just need to prepare ourselves. Like the verse says, always being prepared. That takes work ahead of time, right? To be prepared 
to make a defense. So I said last week, um, this series, on one level, it should cause us just to say, if we're believers, wow, what a truth that is from Scripture. What a truth that is. Thank you, Lord. We could just be encouraged in our walk with the Lord as we closely examine uh, the doctrines that we believe. But then on the other hand, a, a different angle is that we can look at Scripture in this preparatory way. As that verse says, we can look at it as preparation to, to get us ready to share our faith with others in a knowledgeable and persuasive way. Okay? Now, the first message in the series, we started last week, last Sunday, and last Sunday was Reformation Sunday. And fittingly, we looked at this particular doctrine um, that you saw in the title um, that was ac- absolutely central to the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago. It was central then uh, because it's central to the very gospel of Jesus that we know. And so if we get this doctrine wrong, or if we misunderstand it, or if we're ignorant of it, the result is we're going to have the very gospel wrong. And we're not going to be right with God if we misunderstand the core of the gospel, right? What a fatal mistake that would be. So the doctrine I'm referring to is known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, obviously, I cannot review everything that we went over last week. If you missed it, though, I would definitely encourage you to go on the website, listen to it, because in many ways, that message is going to be foundational to the one today. You're going to understand today better if you heard last week. You'll understand today well, I think, without having heard it, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one as well. That'll make more sense if you hear both of them, but... For anybody's sake who hasn't heard that first one, and for our own sake who forget after seven days, right? Let me just give a really quick review to set the stage, and then we'll move on with what we want to talk about today. But last week, what we did, we did this flyover, uh, flyover exposition, you might call it, of Romans 1 through, really through 4, but we went into the first verse of Romans 5. And... We saw from Scripture that human beings are made right with God. The term is justified or declared to be righteous in God's sight, justified by faith alone. That is, faith in Christ to the exclusion of works that we do. That's why the doctrine is called justification by faith alone. The alone word indicates that good works are not part of justification. And the reason that we emphasize this doctrine uh, both last week and continuing this week is that there are many people that all of us know um, who do not understand this doctrine 
They do not understand. And there are even religious groups that classify themselves as quote-unquote Christian, yet they don't believe in justification by faith alone. And if you read the book of Galatians, the Bible is very clear that if someone comes preaching another gospel, which is what it would be if we preached something other than justification by faith alone, that would be another gospel. He says if... If anyone comes preaching another gospel than the one that God has delivered to us through his word, through his apostles, the Bible says, let him be accursed. In other words, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. And we looked at some of the teachings, for instance, on Reformation Day last Sunday, we looked at some of the teachings of the Church of Rome as a popular example. I have Roman Catholic friends they're very dear to me. I care about them. I want them to know the gospel. But the church of Rome and, and their leaders are teaching something about how to be right with God that is not biblical. And I said last week that a Roman Catholic person, if they are believing Rome's official teaching, cannot ever be the blessed man of Romans 4, 8. Let me read Romans 4, 7 to 8 once again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. A person who believes uh, what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about how we're made right with God would be that we're justified by faith plus our good works. And if that is believed, they cannot ever be that blessed, that happy man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that means Romans 5.1 can't be true of them either, which says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope it's clear, I am not trying to be critical of any of my Roman Catholic friends as if we're trying to win an argument or something, but I am wanting to critique a religious system and any other types of religious systems that would teach something about how people are to be made right with God if it's wrong and not biblical. It is not loving of me. It is not loving of us to stay silent while someone believes a religious system that will ultimately not bring them peace with God. So it's my desire... For everybody in this room today or anyone listening to this today or listening to this, watching this in the future, that you will know that you have peace with God. The only way to have peace with God is to believe what he says in his word that our right standing with him is given to us as a gracious gift on the basis of faith alone in Christ and not having anything to do with any works that we do. 
Romans 3.28, we looked at it last week. For we hold, this is the, what Christians believe. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By the way, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that God justifies the ungodly. In other words, I'm glad that we don't have to try to make ourselves godly through good works before God will justify us, as if that were even possible. If that's what God's plan was, then Romans 4, 5, which is where that comes from, it would have to say, hey, God justifies the godly. Make yourself godly and, and God will justify you. But what does it say? It says he justifies the ungodly. Praise the Lord is all I can say. Because that's what I am in, in my own power. I'm an ungodly man, a man dead in sin. Can you identify with this? As Romans 3 said, I am not a seeker of God. I am not a good person. I'm an ungodly man with no righteousness of my own. And God gifted me his grace. Amen. Now today, I just want to do part two of this, why we believe in justification by faith alone. Here's why I want to do this. You say, well, I thought you covered all that last week. I didn't have time to cover something pretty big. Of course, in one sermon, you can't cover the whole counsel of God, can you? <laughs> it's impossible. Uh, but I do want to bring up a passage that will inevitably come up in a conversation about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and that is found in James chapter 2. So if you'll go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, let's examine what James is saying. And the exact passage we're looking at today is James 2, 14 to 26. Give you a second to find it there. James 2, 14 to 26. For someone who argues against the doctrine of justification by faith alone, if they use the Bible at all in their argumenta argumentation, I can pretty much guarantee where they're going to try to argue their position from. They're going to try to argue it from James 2. And if this passage can confuse others, perhaps it can confuse some of us as well, right? So for our own sake, and for the sake, again, of our preparation to defend the faith, we need to know how James 2 fits with all that we have said so far and all that we have seen in the Scriptures so far. Here's what you might hear, by the way, from someone who believes in a justification that is a, that is a form of justification that's faith plus works. They may say it like this, and it's very striking. It goes something like this. I don't believe in justification by faith alone because the only place in the entire Bible where the phrase faith alone is used 
It specifically says that we are not justified by faith alone. And you say, what? And they quote James 2, 24. Look at it with me in your Bible. James 2, 24. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that might really confuse you or me if we're not careful. It will really confuse us if we haven't taken into the account the context of this passage, which we're about to do today. Okay, I hope it'll be helpful to you. Um, other people will go so far as to say, well, I read what Paul said, and now I'm reading what James said, and rather than picking which one, they, they view them as mutually exclusive, there's no way to harmonize them, and rather than picking which one they want to believe, they just say, well, this shows me that the Bible is a contradictory book, and therefore I'm not going to believe any of it. And just to be clear, if James 2.24 is all we had on justification, or if we just read it in isolation by itself, I can truly see how that would be confusing. I do. But again, when you read it in its context, and you do proper exegesis of the text, we'll find there is no contradiction present here at all. None. So I want to walk us through James 2, 14 to 26 and try to exegete the text and see if James and Paul are contradicting each other or not. Hint, hint, they're not. Okay? Let's read. We're going to read this whole passage first and then we'll come back and kind of focus on certain parts of it that cause people confusion. Okay? James 2, 14. This is the word of the living God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, 
so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the word of the Lord. The first thing we need to notice to understand this passage is in verse 14. And this is absolutely vital to understanding the passage. What does James say? He says, what good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Right off the bat, we can see what James is talking about. This is a spoken faith. It is a profession of faith. Guess where it exists? Only in the spoken realm. And if you jump straight to verse 24, without realizing what kind of faith James is attacking in this passage, you'll misunderstand the entire thing. That's why the context is important. Then what's the next sentence in that verse 14 say? Can that faith save him? Let me explain something kind of technical, but I hope you'll stay with me. It's something that Greek scholars have pointed out. Again, hang with me for a second because I think it's very helpful to understanding what James wrote here. In the Greek, there is a little article written right before the word for faith near the end of verse 14. You know what an article is in English? Like the word the or a or an. Greek scholars tell us there is almost nothing more different from Greek and English than the uses of articles. In Greek, articles function very differently. This article refers back to what was defined before. That's why the English Standard Version, which is what I just read from, says, can that faith save him? Did you see that? In this particular instance, I don't really care for how the King James or the New King James translates this because they don't make an effort to translate the article. It just says, can faith save him? Most modern translations, though, make an effort to translate that article that's in the original Greek there. For instance, the New American Standard Bible says, can that faith save him? Or the Christian Standard Bible says, can such faith save him? Do you see the difference? James is not asking, can faith in general save him? He's asking, can that kind of faith save a person? What kind of faith, James? Well, the kind that he just defined, the kind that just says things, but has no evidence in real life. He's showing us what false faith looks like. If someone says they have faith but doesn't have works, can that kind of faith save him? And the implied answer is, of course, no, it cannot. I hope that's helpful. A little bit technical, but it's helpful. Let's continue. What does James say next? He gives some examples that even further demonstrate that he's talking about somebody who only has verbal faith. Yeah, I have faith. They made this profession of faith verbally, but no evidence that it's real. And he gives this example of, of a destitute brother or sister. 
They don't have food. They don't have clothing. They're destitute, I would say. Truly in a destitute position, in great need of help, right? And what does this person do? Well, that's kind of part of James' point. They don't do anything. They just say. All they have is words. They say. See that in verse 16 again. They say, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. And they don't actually give the person what they need. James says, what good is that? That's useless. And verse 17 says, if this so-called faith is by itself just spoken, doesn't have any works with it, it's dead. It's not true faith. So are you already perhaps seeing the difference between what Paul is emphasizing in Romans and what James is emphasizing here? Paul is telling us, How we can be made right with God. Is it by our works? Or is it by faith in Christ? He says it's by faith alone, apart from works. But James is talking about a different situation. He says it's possible to merely say you have faith. Does that mean they're justified? Paul said I'm justified by faith alone. I have faith, so I must be justified. James asks, how is faith? actually demonstrated. He explains that. Two different things being addressed here. Do you see that so far? And again, for time's sake, we can't delve into every single verse in this passage. I wish we could, but I just want to deal with the ones that maybe cause some confusion down the road with people. So let's jump down for now to verse 20 in the passage. And what's actually interesting here is that beginning in verse 20... If you remember from last week, James actually uses the same example from the Old Testament that Paul used, Abraham. Paul used the example of Abraham in Romans 4. And Paul points out that Abraham was justified by believing God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. James takes that same example and proves how foolish it is to claim to have faith but have no works to back it up. And he points to a different aspect of Abraham there. He says, what did Abraham do to prove the reality of that faith? The answer is, he obeyed God, right? He says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So in other words, what proved that Abraham really had believed God was that he obeyed God and he He obeyed God when God told him to offer up your son Isaac as a sacrifice to me. And of course, God didn't really want Abraham to kill Isaac, his long-promised son. It was just a test, a very hard test, right? Um, God stopped him, obviously, before he could actually pull it off. He didn't want him to kill Isaac. He just wanted to see, will you trust me? 
You've waited so long for this one promised son. Now I want you to sacrifice him. Will you trust me, Abraham? Abraham did. So James says, Abraham believed God. That's from Genesis 15. And then from Genesis 22, we have the proof that he really did believe because what did he do? He obeyed. There's the works. And then we get to that famous verse 24 that people sometimes pick out all by itself. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What is that saying? Is this James all of a sudden switching what he's talking about and saying that, hey, justification is by faith plus works? No, he's not saying that. James has carefully defined things already leading up to this point, right? That's why the context is so important. Um, What he's saying is that Abraham was justified by his works in his claim to have faith. His claim to faith was justified by the works. Not justified before God, but justified in his claim to have faith. The justification before God happened in Genesis 15, 6, when it says he believed God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. That's why James quotes it there, by the way. So he was made righteous when he believed God, but what proved or justified that his faith was real was what happened in Genesis 22 as an example when he obeyed. Just like, uh, by the way, just like we read certain English words that have multiple meanings, right? Same word, but depending on the context, you just know that it means a certain thing. Um, The word justified is being here used in a proving sense, not in contradiction to what Paul taught in Romans and Galatians that were justified by faith alone in, in Christ. That's still true. James hasn't contradicted that at all in the least bit in this passage. So it's very important that we follow the whole thing down, not pick out verse 24 and say, oh, he's disagreeing with Paul. No, he's not. This is a faith that is being claimed that only exists in the spoken realm, has zero evidence to show for it. Paul wouldn't say that faith justifies anyone. He would agree with James and say, you're, you're justified by faith alone, but what you got ain't faith. See that? If anybody, um, I'll try something here. If anybody is a visual learner today, let me try to visualize this for you. Sometimes I need to get it out visually too to kind of wrap my mind around, around something in the, in the Word of God. So let me bring up a graphic here that shows... Um, what salvation looks like to both Paul and James. Here's what they both believe. They both believe, hopefully you can see everything on there well enough, they both believe that faith in Christ always leads to what? Good works, obedience to God, right? So let's show both of them on the screen. Both of them believe that. There's Paul's view and there's James' view, identical. Now, somebody might say, well, we know James believes that true faith is active, 
has good works, but how do you know Paul actually believed that as well? Let me just give you an example. We could list many of them, but who has Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 memorized? Probably many people do, right? Let me, let me read two, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and then add verse 10 that we often don't remember, right? So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Glorious verses about grace and faith. And sometimes, as I said, we forget about verse 10 where Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So did Paul teach that a person who had saving faith would always have works that follow that faith? Yes, he did. He agrees with James. There's no contradiction there. If we had time, we'd look at other examples from Paul's writings. But back to the visual. Check this out with me on the screen. Maybe it'll be helpful to somebody. Paul takes the... Faith, the simple trusting in Christ, the believing what God has said about Christ, casting yourself on Christ for mercy and forgiveness of sins. And he says, that alone is what justifies you before God. If you can't read that small writing in that red box, it says, justified justifies us before God. What does? Faith. That alone is what justifies. Period. Faith alone. Sola fide is the Latin term in the Reformation. I've got a shirt. It has the five solas of the Reformation on there. Sola fide is one of them. Faith alone. James takes the very same things And he points this out, that it's actually the works that demonstrates the reality of the faith. It's still the faith that saves. It's still that faith that justifies, just like Paul taught. He hasn't taught anything contrary to Paul. James hasn't. But he points out that what works do is they demonstrate the reality of saving faith. So we have two very valid points being made by Paul and James, two different situations being talked about, right? Here's another way we can summarize it. Faith is what justifies the sinner before God. You see that in red on the screen. But it's the resultant works that actually justifies the faith. Meaning it shows that faith was real, right? I guess I'm just laboring over this because it needs to be crystal clear in your mind how we're saved. If we're to have peace with God in our own hearts and we have any kind of confidence standing before God, we need to know this. And to help us be able to defend what the Bible teaches about justification. And when someone points to James and says, whoa, 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 what about James? What about it? He's talking about the same exact thing, right? 
Another way theologians have expressed this truth is like this. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Kind of a tongue twister, but it ties up all that we've talked about, right? Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Why is it never alone? It always has works with it. Yet another way to express it would be like this. Faith is the root and deeds are the fruit. Good works always follow saving faith. Good works are the fruit of saving faith, not the cause of it, the fruit of it. So all this to say, when it's all said and done, and James and Paul have been read very carefully, we've allowed them to speak and define their own terms as the Holy Spirit has led them, they both are saying the exact same thing simply with different emphasis. They both teach we're saved by faith alone, and they both teach that good works are the fruit of saving faith. It's just that James is making that additional point that Paul would agree with as well, that faith and works, you can't just separate them and have faith by itself with no works. That situation doesn't exist. If you think it does, what you actually have that you're calling faith is just dead faith. It's not real. Verse 26 of James 2 says that. So I don't know if you've ever been nervous reading James 2 or not. Um, But I hope you could see when you get down to it, there's absolutely zero disagreement there with anything Paul taught or anything that Jesus taught, for that matter, or anywhere else in Scripture. It's in perfect harmony with itself. God's Word is. So I I just encourage you to examine these texts that we've looked at for the past two weeks. We we went through Romans, the first four to five chapters. You want to be solid on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If someone is confused on how they can be made right with God, I hope that you can confidently tell them that God, my friend, justifies the ungodly on the basis of simple trust and faith in Christ's perfect work that has already been done at the cross. And when Christ saves a person, he makes them new. Therefore, good works always come out of that person who has saving faith even though those works aren't the basis of justification at all, they're, they're the fruit of it. And you can tell them these things on an authority that's much higher than your own opinions or your own upbringing or your own church tradition. You can tell them on the authoritative word of God. This is what it says. Let me just close the sermon with this. We'll take a step back. And we'll just eyeball all of this that we've talked about for the last two weeks. What has God done in justification? Put all the pieces together. We read in the Bible about a humanity that is so broken from sin that none of us have 
any righteousness of our own to speak of. None. None of us seeks after God. We're not just neutral truth seekers. There's none of those. Where have anyone seen one of those at? They don't exist. None of us seek after God. None of us are good people. Not one person. So we aren't basically good at heart. We aren't truth seekers. And I base all this on Romans 3, 10 to 18. That is our condition whether we like it or not. And here's the beauty. Rather than leave us in that condition, or worse, mock us by giving us this list of works that we must be able to pull off to make ourselves savable, Works that we've, where are we going to get the ability to do that, God? That's cruel. <laughs> I'm at the bottom of a pit, and you're saying, get yourself out, and I'll save you. I've already saved myself if I do that. Instead of all that, God determined that he would send his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he has declared that whoever repents of their sin and turns to Christ in faith, trusting in Him alone for their forgiveness and salvation, God justifies that sinner instantaneously. He imputes or counts Jesus' righteousness to that person. They are declared righteous, bang the gavel, righteous in the sight of God. And he does not count their sin against them. He puts it on Jesus instead. And Jesus paid for the whole thing. That person is right before God who made them. And they don't have to worry about losing that justification by committing some act of sin. Every sin has been paid for already. Isn't that a gracious arrangement that's the God of the Bible a God of mercy and grace who justifies ungodly people sinners not people who shape themselves up on their own but people who cannot do anything for themselves he justifies them simply on the basis of believing and trusting in Christ And then James comes along and flavors this whole thing. Not just James, but other writers. He says, here's the beauty of God's grace in this other way. That not only does it come with justification by faith alone, but what it comes with when God gives a person that kind of faith, it comes with a radical transformation attached to it. God being sovereign over his salvation. As I said, he's the giver of this faith that we've been talking about. Each and every person who gets this gift of faith receives it as a package. And what does it come with? It comes with the desire and the ability to follow God. So saving grace is a transformative grace. 
That's where those good works come in. So this is the type of gift that God gives rebellious, hopeless, helpless sinners like us. It's, it's enough to justify us, yes, but it's also enough to change us at our very core so that what flows out of us is now good works. What a glorious gospel it is, isn't it? I call you to come to him today. You may have considered yourself to be religious or spiritual, but ask yourself, are you the blessed man of Romans 4, 8? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Have you thrown yourself on Christ's mercy for your right standing before God? Or are you counting even a little bit on your own doings to somehow add to God's grace? Throw all that down. Come with nothing in your hand. As we sang last week, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's how God designed salvation. When you come with nothing, he gives you everything. Your sins will not be imputed to you. They will be imputed to Christ. That is his unearnable gift of grace. So let's take all these thoughts about this good and kind God and turn now to the Lord's table, shall we? Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for this clear teaching in your word on justification. That sinners are made right in your sight by faith alone in Christ alone. Lord, would you just strike from our hearts and minds any false notions of a works-based justification. May we come to see, Lord, what a gracious gift our salvation really is. We have nothing to do with it. It's all of you. Even the faith that we have is a gift from you. We give you all the glory. And Lord, as we partake together in this ordinance, help us to realize more fully what it is that you have done. You haven't taken good people and made them better. You've taken wretched people, worms, maggots before you. And you have made them perfect and lovely in your sight. And Lord, this ordinance just reinforces the gospel through all of our senses and, and help our emotions, Lord, to match what we know of your glorious gospel. Thank you for the sweet, sweet gift of salvation in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.